Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Jeremy Frank, LA Opera's associate chorus master, is actually a man of many talents, conductor, pianist, educator, and mixologist. He is certainly the delightful host of LA Opera Connect's popular Opera Happy Hour web series. When you have time, you'll want to check out LA Opera's website at www.laopera.org, where you can find an entire library of Opera Happy Hour episodes in which Jeremy invites us to join in the fun of learning about opera and your beverage of choice. Cheers. Hi, welcome to Opera Happy Hour. My name is Jeremy Frank, and I'm so happy that you've tuned in for another episode. We started the second season of this show with a big discussion about whether opera is elitist or not. And I tried to make a fairly forceful argument that opera can be for anyone. And I totally stand by that and believe it. However, I want to acknowledge that one thing that can seem pretty off-putting is that since the bulk of our repertoire comes from Europe, we aficionados tend to throw around a lot of foreign terms. I even do it myself. Although on this show, I try to explain what I'm talking about always so that you don't feel totally left in the dark. Today, I want to explore one of these foreign terms in particular and some of the music that it describes. And that particular term is bel canto. Now on the surface, it seems like this should be a fairly easy term to define. After all, in Italian, these words mean beautiful singing. But then you'll also meet some Italians who translate this term as beautiful song. The ambiguity of this term not having just one specific meaning is emblematic of the way that the term gets thrown around and used in a ton of different ways. For instance, if you are a German musicologist from the early part of the 20th century, you'll probably be referring to music from the late 16th and early 17th centuries if you are the famous opera composer Gioacchino Rossini in the year 1858, you're at the end of your career and you're lamenting what you perceive to be the end of glorious Italian singing traditions, saying, quote, alas, we have lost our bel canto. But if you are a musician in the middle of the 19th century or later, you're probably using this term as we generally do now to describe Italian opera from the first few decades of the 19th century usually written by three specific powerhouse composers, Gioacchino Rossini, Vincenzo Bellini, and Gaetano Donizetti. Oddly enough, no matter which historical period you're looking at, there are several common traits among the music broadly defined as bel canto. First of all, it's Italian, or written by composers imitating the Italian style. Then there is a big emphasis placed on two starkly contrasting kinds of vocal writing. The first centers on a very smooth vocal production and evenness of sound throughout a singer's entire vocal range. Musicians refer to this vocal approach as legato or very connected singing. Beginning in the 19th century, most Italian voice teachers have taught their students to sing this way with as little perceived effort as possible. The other contrasting vocal approach emphasizes vocal flexibility and agility and employs the clear articulation of fast notes. 
in many ways, this is the 19th century version of the riffs that you might find in jazz or R&B today. Now, everybody agrees that bel canto is supposed to be the quintessential way to sing classical music, and specifically opera. I mean, who wants to hear ugly singing? At this point, you might be thinking to yourself, this is all fine and good, Jeremy, but we've all heard you sing, and you are certainly no Pavarotti. While that is true, I'm hopeful that my singing and playing will be bel enough to inspire you to seek out recordings of beautiful singers or, better yet, live streams of opera. When I mentioned our three heavyweight composers of 19th century bel canto music, some of you brunch-goers, uh, your ears might have perked up when I mentioned Bellini, because there is a cocktail named after him. The recipe is simple. It's two parts Prosecco to one part peach puree, but if you don't have that, it's perfectly acceptable to substitute peach syrup, as I have done here. Uh, you can imagine that this drink is as delicious as the operas. So, without further delay, let's jump right into the music, and cheers! Of our three composers, Bellini was perhaps the most masterful at composing long, winding, beautiful tunes that spin out in elegant, seemingly endless lines. In composing this way, he manages to disguise the phrase structure of the melody. Now, that might sound confusing, but consider the pop song Yesterday by the Beatles. The melody of that song is elusive and haunting, and it's almost completely uh, avoiding the square pairs of phrases that you would find in a simple children's tune like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Because of that asymmetry in the musical phrases, there's almost no way to predict what will happen next. In fact, Bellini's melodies were so long that he earned the nickname the Swan of Catania because his tunes were just that long and graceful. As our first example, I'd like to play one of the most famous arias from one of Bellini's most famous operas, namely Norma, written in 1831. In the aria Casta Diva, the title character Norma sings a hymn of praise to the moon. Every syllable of the text is exquisitely elongated, so that it takes her nearly two pages of music to sing one single sentence. Her singing is the whole showcase here, and she's accompanied by remarkably simple undulating arpeggios in the orchestra, over which her voice part hovers and soars. I'm going to sing the beginning of this aria for you, but at some point after today's show, I hope you'll treat yourself to a recording of your favorite, famous opera soprano. Check out this beautiful tune. Sacre, 
be super easy for you to get the impression that this pristine melodic writing was unique to the operatic repertoire. But in fact, some composers like Frédéric Chopin, who didn't write any opera at all, took deep inspiration from this style of writing and incorporated it into his own instrumental writing. I'd like to explore two more musical examples that share uncanny melodic resemblances. The first of the two also comes from Bellini's Norma, which I'll quickly remind you was written in 1831, and the second excerpt is from Chopin's first piano concerto, which was premiered in 1830. These two pieces sound almost like one composer plagiarized the other, and although the two composers eventually became good friends, they didn't meet until 1833 in Paris. So, how could this happen? Oddly, many of Chopin's biographers assume that because Bellini was about 10 years older than Chopin, he clearly influenced the younger man. But if that indeed happened at all, it was a much more indirect influence. In fact, in many ways, Chopin's development as a composer in his native Poland evolved independently of Bellini's, albeit along similar lines. You see, Chopin was a huge opera fan from his teenage years, and he simply loved singers and singing, and he knew and revered all of the major stars of his day. Since the bel canto fad was taking over the entire European opera scene, Chopin would have absorbed that general approach to melodic writing without consciously imitating it. In fact, the opera conductor Will Crutchfield once wrote that though Chopin never made musical quotations or virtuosic transcriptions of bel canto works like other composers did, he must have composed as if he were under their spell. In essence, Chopin's writing is an evocation or a distillation of the feeling and mood of the music he heard and loved in his youth. So now, let's listen to these twin excerpts written by two brilliant composers who hadn't even yet met each other. First, I'll play Teneri Figli from Bellini's Norma, a scene where a mother has to decide if it is best to sacrifice her own children. You can guess that the sound of that melody is nothing short of heartbreaking. Then, I'll immediately play the first theme from Chopin's Piano Concerto in E minor. Even though that piece has no words, 
you can hear the melancholy that permeates the writing. And uh, you can also hear how the two pieces seem to echo one another. Now, don't forget, the beautiful melodic writing that I showed you in the last three excerpts is really only half of the story of what makes bel canto special. We also need the other side of the coin. That is, fast, florid music, or as I like to call it, vocal fireworks. In fact, our bel canto composers knew that it would be boring to do only one kind of music for too long, so they created a pattern of alternating slow and fast music. Throughout their operas, they'd start with the slow music full of pathos, and they called that a cavatina. Then they'd follow it up with a healthy dose of fireworks that showed literally everything a singer can do, in a showstopper that they would call a cabaletta. I'd like to play you one of the most famous cabalettas ever written, which comes from the Barber of Seville in Rosina's opening aria, Una Voce Poco Fa. By now, I've mentioned Rosina several times in multiple episodes, and I'm guessing that you remember that she is a strong, feisty young woman. One might even call her spunky. In fact, in her cabaletta, she describes herself, quote, I may be docile, respectful, obedient, and loving, but... If you try to exploit me, I will set a hundred traps for you, and I will play games that you cannot win. This is clearly a woman who you don't want to mess with. Rossini perfectly depicts this spicy side of Rosina with very florid vocal writing, uh, which we would call uh, in Italian coloratura. Now, though I love singing, this particular excerpt lays way outside of my vocal abilities. So I've come up with a creative solution to show you just how impressive this music is. I'm going to play this cabaletta as a two-piano duet. This is not for the faint of heart. 
But when our mezzo-soprano pulls it off, she makes us instantly fall in love with her. And if she does it well, she barely breaks a sweat. This Olympic-style singing feat sounds a little something like this. If you thought those fast notes were impressive, just wait until you hear the famous high notes of the bel canto period. One of the most famous high-flying arias occurs in Donizetti's comic opera, The Daughter of the Regiment, or La Fille du Regiment. In this piece, the character Tonio falls in love with the beautiful young Marie, and he joins the 21st Regiment of the Army to be able to be near her. In his excitement, he sings a cabaletta in which he dispatches nine, count them, nine consecutive high Cs, 
one of the highest notes that most tenors can sing. To make this incredible feat even more impressive, you need to know a little bit about the history of vocal technique for tenors during the bel canto era. When Rossini started writing operas in the 1810s or so, when tenors sang high notes, it was standard procedure for them to switch over to their falsetto voice, as if they were an operatic version of the Bee Gees. But in 1837, a tenor named Gilbert Louis Dupré came along, and he decided to sing his high C's in full voice, sounding much more manly than girly. Uh, to the audience at the time, it must have sounded like he was screaming on pitch. And to be honest, sometimes it still does. Rossini was appalled and said that this vocal approach sounded like the squawk of a chicken being strangled. But over the years, opera goers came to love this manly approach to high singing. And now this is how every single operatic tenor does it. I'd like to sing this aria for you now, and of course, I don't have a high C, but if you remember my rendition of the Queen of the Night's aria from a couple episodes ago, I do have a passable high F, at least for a pianist. So if you'll indulge me, I'll sing this cabaletta in transposition, and I'll give you nine high Fs. To me, this is the equivalent of uh, watching or listening to a vocal balance beam routine. Wish me luck that I don't fall off. I hope you stay happy and healthy. Uh, I'm thinking of all of you and uh, hope you'll be joining us for all of the great programming that we've got coming out. I'll see you next time. Cheers. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you and see you at the opera.
If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.